Welcome to Felony Miami, where we have real conversation with real people about the criminal justice system right here in America. Busted, tapped out, lost in the woods, desolate, naked in the winter, overlevered, indigent, penniless, gone fishing, in the poorhouse, itinerant, rambling, povertized, compromised, chaptered, scrambling, crumbling, bankrupt. No matter how you describe it, it all means the same thing. You borrowed money, you owe money, but you got no money, and the creditors are coming at you with all they've got. Your creditors have spent so much time breathing down your neck that the back of your head smells like the garlic-heavy meal they had last night for dinner. And it looks like you're on the menu for their next meal. As they set out to cannibalize every last asset you have to pay off your debt. But don't lose hope yet. Bankruptcy and the laws that govern this federal domain could save you. And all of a sudden, having no money seems like the best alternative to owing more than you could ever pay back in a thousand lifetimes. In just four to seven years, the vultures have stopped circling and you could have a brand new shiny credit record and once again be a good risk for someone else to take a chance on you. Where there is injustice for one, there is injustice for all. Welcome to Felony Miami. Let's air it out. Hello and welcome back to Felony Miami. I'm your host, Joe Stone. And on today's program, we're talking bankruptcy. Now, yeah, bankruptcy can actually land you in prison if you're a liar, and it can be a felony charge. And to explain that today, we have three guests on the show. To my left, we have Paul Orshan. He's the owner and principal of Orshan PA, and he represents debtors and other parties in chapter bankruptcy cases. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Joe. Thank Good you for be being here. here. Paul is also a friend of mine. Uh, we also have Leza Blanco, and she's a partner at, help me with this? Secor Law. Secor Law, and regularly represents lenders and other parties in bankruptcy cases and has an expertise in foreign bankruptcy cases filed in the U.S. of A. And to my right, we have Jackie Cauldron. Did I get yes. that right? Uh, she's a partner at Agentis Law and represents debtors and other parties in bankruptcy cases. And she also serves as a panel bankruptcy trustee for Chapter 7 cases. So we're going to learn some stuff today. What I'd like to do, I'd like to start out right away with uh, Paul. Can you explain what bankruptcy is and what these chapters are that we keep hearing about? Sure. Um, glad to be here. Uh, bankruptcy is a federal system whereby someone who has debts can choose to go into bankruptcy to resolve those debts. And there are really three chapters that a debtor can choose to file under. There's Chapter 7, Chapter 11, and Chapter 13. Chapter 7 is basically a liquidation where a debtor says, here's everything I own, here's everybody I owe money to, I'm allowed to exempt certain things from my bankruptcy estate like my homestead and certain items of personal property and uh, insurance policies and, and 401ks. 
and you take everything and whatever's left, you pay my creditors if you are able to get some money out of that. That's basically a chapter seven. Chapter 11 is, an, is a reorganization, normally done for businesses, but it can be done for an individual, but it really only makes sense if they have significant holdings, real estate, businesses, whatever, where they want to possibly change the amount of an interest rate on a loan or just have reorganize a large amount of debt because they're having cash flow issues and they propose a plan to pay their creditors back that gets voted on by the creditors. Chapter 13 is a, a bit of a hybrid because it also involves a debtor proposing a plan, but it's an, called an individual debt readjustment plan. An easy example is a debtor makes $5,000 a month. They're allowed to deduct certain expenses from that. Whatever is left at the end of the month, they pay that amount in for five years to a Chapter 13 trustee, and that amount is used to pay their creditors on a pro rata basis. doesn't matter if it's $5. As long as there's a couple of dollars left at the end of the month, or sometimes it's nothing, they end up paying their creditors back but they're in bankruptcy for five years, usually paying some money back. Now, is that, that like one of those debt restructuring things you hear on TV? Like, oh, we'll restructure your debt for you. Call us at 800. Is, is that? Well, yes, except that this is a legal process that the debt restructuring plans you hear about are outside of bankruptcy. Um, some of those are legitimate. I think the ones that are not for profit maybe help some people, but I get clients that come in to see me that have done those things, they end up owing more after they've gone to see that company than they owed before because of all the fees they end up having to pay that company. Exactly. But it's similar. Okay, so 7, 11, 13. Yes, sir. And the most common is? 7. 7. And that's the one like where I've just went too crazy, racked up a bunch of credit card debt, and I'm like, you know what? I can't pay for this. I need to uh, file bankruptcy. Or you got sick and you racked up a lot of medical bills and didn't have insurance, or you suffered a calamity. That's what, the, that's what Chapter 7 is intended for. It really is intended for the honest debtor to be able to get a fresh start, right. to be able to commit whatever assets they have to their creditors, and they usually don't have any assets, right. and start to rehabilitate themselves. It's not meant for habitual offenders for people who go crazy with their credit cards although we certainly see plenty of those right and you can also see it in a in the case where you have a business owner who has guaranteed a fair amount of business debt the business fails for legitimate reasons and they are left with the business guaranteed debt and they seek and bankruptcy usually as the owner they have to sign personally for that too right? correct that's yeah. those are the debts that would then be the part of the chapter 7 proceeding that would be sought to be discharged right. because then the owner has no business and has a great deal of debt that results and, and one other legitimate reason people file is they lose their job so they have a mortgage on their home and the bank forecloses on their home but the home value has gone way down so there's a deficiency and they personally owe that deficiency and the bank wants to come after them so they can't pay it and right. so they go into bankruptcy to resolve that obligation an important factor too in, in understanding what what chapter 7 is about is that you're allowed as a chapter 7 debtor to keep certain assets, but they are um, just prescribed in, in the state's laws. And here in Florida, when you file a chapter 7, you're permitted to keep $1,000 towards your personal property, $1,000 towards a vehicle, 
and your homestead, which is one of five states only in the United States, which has an unlimited homestead exemption. So that that's one factor that uh, folks need to be aware of because you do get rid of all your debt, but you only get to keep a finite amount of assets. So can you tell me what that means that I get to keep my homestead? So your homestead, it's a homestead exemption. It's a very unique exemption, um, only available in very few states in the United States. And basically you get to keep your principal residence, Okay. Provided that it is within the parameters in the law, which here in Florida requires that you have a home that is no no greater than half an acre. And it has no limit in value, but it has to be a half an acre unless it's in a rural area. So if you're in a municipality, you have to have a, a home that's within a half an acre, which is a, a normal size for a, sure. a home. Yeah, in a, in a big city Except area. for maybe people that live in Pinecrest. <laughs> so you have but to that be a, used to be a rural area. Right. <laughs> you know, right. 35, 40 but years ago, that was... incorporated, so now it fits within the definition of your um, municipality. So if somebody and, lives... And Pinecrest is an area that, that's quite ritzy these days um, in, in the Miami area. Um, so if, if you had a house in Pinecrest and it's more than... Because most of those lots are an acre or more, you don't get to keep that? You get to keep Homestead up to a certain portion. So okay. it is apportioned... Uh, up to the limit. The problem is, is that you really can't split up a lot. So if a trustee or a creditor objects to the exemption, then sometimes the only way to um, get the value of that exemption for the creditors is to force the sale. And then okay. from the sale, the debtor gets the prorated proceeds. Right. Uh, most trustees will work with a debtor to help them get financing. I'm a trustee and I typically do that. Yeah, that was my next question because I heard the word trustee a few times. Um, but can you break down, and you are a trustee. I am. Can you break down exactly what that means? Sure. Uh, the uh, bankruptcy process is overseen by an arm of the Department of Justice called the U.S. Trustees Program. The U.S. Trustees Program is sort of a watchdog responsible for overseeing cases in general. And in different jurisdictions, there are assistant U.S. trustees uh, who preside over those regions. And then Underneath them are panel trustees. It's a lifetime appointment, and um, it's typically a panel comprised of lawyers or accountants. And the uh, appointments by those trustees in specific cases are usually based on a blind rotation. And when a trustee is appointed, it is a trustee's job to review the debtor's assets, to review the schedules, to review the liabilities, to try to collect um, any assets that are available for creditors. And sometimes that involves litigation, objection to exemptions, for example, in homestead. And I've objected to many homesteads exemptions. Sometimes it's pursuing fraudulent transfers. For instance, if a debtor knew that there was a judgment creditor and um, transferred a bank account or an asset to his or her brother, um, that may be a cause of action that the trustee would pursue. So the trustee really stands in the shoes of the creditors. If they were not in bankruptcy, a creditor could pursue a judgment against the debtor. And then once they have a judgment, they can pursue transfers that the debtor has made. But once a Chapter 7 is filed, all those causes of actions that a creditor would have, now the trustee can pursue them on behalf of the estate. So that, and then the person that owes the money gets like a break. 
They don't get the phone calls. They don't get the the people knocking at the door. There is a stay that's in place by virtue of the uh, bankruptcy filing. And in Chapter 7, it's an automatic stay is what it's called. And it stays all efforts against the debtor's property or the debtor themselves. Can't, Can't try to collect, can't do anything against the debtor once the case has been filed. Right. So that's what provides for the fresh start. And then it's the trustee's job to monetize the assets they're able to recover and distribute whatever the value of those are to the creditors. There is some exception to the automatic stay. For instance, if you've got a debtor who hasn't made a payment on her home and is not making payments or is not making uh, the properties uninsured or is not paying real estate taxes, the secured creditor, usually a bank, can file a motion for relief from the automatic stay, and the court will grant it if the court finds that the creditor is not protected. In other words, there is a risk that the value of the creditor's claim will diminish because the collateral is not being protected. Right, so you need to have insurance on that house in case the hurricane comes wipes it out, and then the bank's like, oh, well, now we have a pile of rubble. We don't have a house that's worth a million dollars anymore. Exactly. Jackie, for purposes of scale, how many active Chapter 7 cases do you have at any one time? Uh, Well, active, um, right now, well, historically, I used to have three calendars a month, uh, three calendars of 40 cases. Uh, In the last couple of years, bankruptcy has been very slow, and now I'm up to two calendars a month. I would say that 98% of my calendars are no acid cases. Now, now, let me ask you a question. Did that happen? Because I know back a, a few administrations ago when uh, George Bush W. was in office, there was a whole big thing about bankruptcy and people were rushing to file bankruptcy. Bankruptcy reform the, the law occurred changed. in 2005 when the law changed and it imposed a, a means test, which is sort of a threshold test to analyze whether someone qualifies to be a, a bankrupt debtor in Chapter 7 without a presumption of abuse of the process. And that was all codified in 2005. So was that a good thing or a bad thing? Just And I know that's that's got two sides because it was probably a great thing for the creditors and a horrible thing for the debtors. But I mean, in general, just for our society. I'm, I'm going with horrible. I'll, t- I'll tell you why. That was a, a bill that was pushed hard by the credit card companies. They're okay. the ones who really were behind that. The problem is that the abuses that they cited, which were the people from Enron or the people from all these companies that were trying to file bankruptcy, Bowie Kuhn, the former baseball commissioner, and there's all these people that used to move to Florida and file for bankruptcy. O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. And so, but here's the problem. The means test is one way you can qualify for a Chapter 7. The second way is if more than half of your debt is considered non-consumer debt, meaning it came from a business loss or a guarantee of a non-residential property, you also qualify. So the people that the law was intended to catch, it didn't catch. And it just has hurt the regular guy who suffers um, a, a medical issue or loses a job and then can't pass that means test. And people get caught, Jackie and I were talking before the broadcast about people that get caught in no man's land where they can't qualify for a Chapter 7 and they make too much money for a Chapter 13 because they'd be paying back way more than they even owe. So I believe, and I think the judges, our judges certainly, we've talked to them enough at various conferences, are very unhappy with the means test and don't think it was a good thing. And for the most part, even in restructuring Chapter 11 cases, which is doesn't appear to be the focus of our of our show, but um, it's even made it difficult for debtors' lawyers like myself to um, 
restructure cases. Landlords, for example, have a lot more power in uh, a bankruptcy case now than they ever did before 2005. So it used to be that we could file a retail company, get them through the low season, let them accumulate cash, hopefully get some financing, and then get out of Chapter 11. The prescriptions now on how much time a small business debtor can stay in Chapter 11, plus the, um, the powers that creditors have, have made it very challenging to um, confirm some Chapter 11 cases and restructure. Specifically on the landlord side, you, you can't be, be, go beyond a certain time frame um, and before you have to cure the, the debt to the landlord, meaning you have Does to catch mean, up on all the arrearages. You have to pay all your That's exactly right. So it's very difficult for a, for a debtor nowadays who doesn't have or can't afford to do that right. to, to stay in a lengthy proceeding because the jurisdiction of the court is capped at a certain amount of time by which that has to be done. Right. I mean, because what Jackie was just saying makes sense like on a real on a reality basis like okay hey this company just needs a minute to catch up to get reorganized they had some bad bad things happen i mean that makes just kind of basic sense because we'd like to see doors for businesses stay opened in our communities particularly retail retail yeah. is suffering so much because of the internet that they are the ones who really need that respite that pre-2005 bankruptcy go gave them and so they're really, is, really limited. Is there it's a way painful to walk through a mall and see more than you know three quarters of the stores closed? Yeah, it is, especially when you live in that community. It's it's um, it's depressing. I had a client come to see me a couple of weeks ago, and he has been taking money out of his four hundred one k to prop up a retail business. My suggestion, he didn't hire me, was stop doing that. Um, you're you're throwing good money after bad. There's yeah. no retail is not coming back. It's just not. There's there's no scenario that I've heard about or read about where retail is going to make this huge return. Um, I, I've heard people talk about using some of the existing malls to be like a paintball um, competition places because there's just going to be all these open spaces that have to be used for something. So, crazy. Um, so retail's you, tough. You mentioned, though, that, that – um it's a means test in that here in Florida, the judges aren't happy with it. Can the judges um, override that? or No, are they no able it's to? actually codified in it, a it's law. Federal law. So it's like a min-man with criminal stuff. With and it's actually applicable and... in every state. The The factors that change have to do with cost of living adjustments, and, and those relate to where you live, but those are just a, a factor of, of, of money. They're not. Is the, there a way around it? No. Uh, not for the consumer debtor, unfortunately. When and your debt is said, primarily consumer, then you then the means test applies to you and you have to fall within it in order not to be presumed to be abusing the process. It, and what it ends up coming, it, it's different because it's different for each individual debtor because there is a calculation that's done based on what their expenses are, although they, they're not, their total expenses aren't allowed. There's limits that are applied. But if you make more than about $75,000, I, as, as a, a rule, rule, you're, you're yeah. not going to qualify for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Okay. Um, you can. There's some, I have had a couple of clients who were a little bit higher because they had unusual expenses or large number of dependents or whatever it might be. But for the most part, you have to be in that fifty to sixty to $65,000 range, I think, to qualify. Um, and the way, the way it works is they look at your income over a six-month period and then annualize it. So what the, way, the only way the system can be gamed is if you have a client 
who has an opportunity to not work for a period of time, they can do that so then during the six-month period their income is down, and when you annualize it, they can qualify. And I have had clients that made the decision to do that. To just stop working for yeah. a few months because they had to, file they had to find a way to deal with the debt. But I think I want to touch on one other uh, topic that Jackie mentioned I think is important for your, your listeners to understand. Bankruptcy has a backward-looking part of it. And Jackie talked about it. So when bankruptcy is filed, the trustee or creditors in some cases can look backwards from the date the bankruptcy is filed to go after certain people that the debtor did business with. For example, if a debtor made a payment to a person on an old debt in a period of time before the bankruptcy, that can be considered a preference. There's a 90-day look back for the whole world and then a year look back for insiders, typically family members. And what that means is what it says the debtor is preferring one creditor over other creditors. So the trustee can go and sue those people to bring that money back in and then redistribute it to all the creditors. That's one concept. The second is what's called the fraudulent transfer. And although there's a one-year look back for fraudulent transfers in bankruptcy, the bankruptcy system allows the trustees to use Florida law. And Florida law has a four-year look back on fraudulent transfers. The best definition of a fraudulent transfer is it's not fraud. It's where a debtor has transferred something and not gotten fair consideration in return. For example, if I gave my sister $50,000 because she needed it three years ago and she never paid it back, the trustee could go after her to sue her for that $50,000 and bring it back to the estate to pay my creditors. Um, so th- those How often does that happen, though? All often. the time. Really? And, even some- and do they collect? Yes, and even something yeah. less With innocuous. our aggressive trustees, of course it happens all you the know, time. I may have <laughs> a used car that I don't want anymore, that I don't need, and I tell my nephew, hey, you need a car, I'm, gonna, I'm going to give it to you. You're my, you're my sister's son, I'm going to give him the car. And then I get into trouble, and I have to file for bankruptcy. Well... The trustee is going to look at what consideration I received in exchange for that car. There was really no ill intent. It's my sister's kid. I gave him a used car, and I bought myself a new car. But the fact that I didn't get anything in return, now the trustee can sue my nephew to recover the value of that car. You got some good family will and karma. Going back to your question. (laughs) Maybe not cash, though. (laughs) <laughs> Going back to your question earlier, both examples uh, from Paul and Jackie are um, examples where there is no ill intent, but there are plenty of examples where uh, people who are looking to get uh, out of their debt are transferring their valuable assets on purpose to keep them away from creditors. Well, that opens up the next set of questions that I'm super curious to ask. It's actually something I probably should have started the show with, but I am, I'm sure that you guys, especially Miami, fraud capital of the world, you have you must have all seen some pretty spectacular attempts at, at trickery and 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 uh, I'd love to hear some of your stories about what some of the stunts people pull. Well, first I'll have to say never from my clients. <laughs> but you know, I funny I laugh, but here, here's the truth, and I mentioned this earlier. So I, I've been practicing as a bankruptcy lawyer for 30 years. The basis to file bankruptcy is you want to get a discharge from all of your debts and get what's called a fresh start. That's why you file bankruptcy. Okay. There are bases for your creditors and your trustee to object to your discharge if you do certain bad things. Right. <clears throat> One of those is transferring property in the year before the bankruptcy. One of those is not being able to explain what happened to your assets, uh, not having books and records to show what happened to you, um, engaging in fraudulent uh, activities. So... Um, 
I have never had a client lose a discharge in the 30 years I've been doing this. And one of the reasons is that bankruptcy is really about one thing and one thing only. It's about disclosure. You have to disclose everything. You can't, if you, if you go in trying to hide things, that's when you have problems. One of my favorite stories is I was meeting a number of years ago with an elderly couple that was considering filing bankruptcy. And the woman said to me, do I have to disclose if my sister is holding all of my jewelry? <laughs> And my response was, you do now. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not playing games with anybody. I mean, if I know about it, now I tell my clients, you have, I can only report what you report to me, sure. but I'm imploring you to, to do it. Because we've all heard the stories. I'll give you a couple of examples that I've heard. Um, a woman files for bankruptcy. One of her, uh, I'm using air quotes, her nosy friend or neighbor looks up her bankruptcy case and calls her trustee and says, you know, it's really interesting. I looked at her bankruptcy papers. Where's her diamond engagement ring? She wears it all the time. She got in trouble because she specifically and with intent did not disclose her diamond ring. Um, there's all kinds of things like that. And so what I tell my cl prospective clients, I go, listen, if you have your grandmother's heirloom ring and it, it's $10,000, right? And you're trying to get out of a half a million dollars of debt. Two things. Number one, that's the best deal in town. You're giving up a $10,000 asset to pay back $500,000 of debt. But here's the other thing. We talked earlier about exemptions. You're allowed to exempt certain property from your estate. What ends up happening for most people is when they're over-exempt, let's say they have $10,000 of property and they only have the $1,000 exemption, right. they buy their own property back from the trustee. So okay. I said, if you want to keep that ring, you buy it back. But th that's where people get in trouble. They try to hold something out that does, should have been disclosed, and they get in trouble. Does Not, that does that happen? Do people buy their stuff back? Oftentimes over time. Too. Yeah? Uh, yes. In fact— Because they're like a high-end pawn shop. <laughs> you know, in many ways, yes. Yeah. In fact, though, every trustee is different. Uh, I am primarily a debtor's lawyer, so I always presume that the debtors are innocent until I find something bad. There are some trustees, for example, who might be forensic accountant who— see the letters as bad until they're proven to be good. Okay. So when I do my due diligence, I'm always assuming that there was something cat catastrophic that happened. Sure. Okay. Yeah. But so I typically try to work with the debtors specifically because if I don't, they'll convert to a Chapter 13. So if they convert to a Chapter 13, the trustee is going to accept payments over time on their non-exempt assets. That's what a Chapter 13 debtor can do. They can retain the diamond ring, but they have to pay for the value of that diamond ring over time. Can you set that uh, that monthly payment? Or? I do. Okay. And if it's a vehicle, I'll take a lien on the title. Okay. I can't do it for five years the way a, a, uh, a trustee, a Chapter 13 trustee does. Okay. But I will typically accept 10 months. Uh, uh, of installment payments. And if there's an uh, income tax refund coming, I might say, okay, satisfy it with an income tax refund. But those are the good ones. Right. Uh, as a trustee, I have a lot of juicy stories. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to hear some. But let me ask you a question. Where do you keep all this stuff? Do you have a warehouse? I rarely take possession of uh, okay. property, but I do have a safe. So I've you know, I've kept Rolex watches in there. I've kept diamond rings in there. Okay. I've kept cash in there, uh -huh. although that I prefer not to do. But if I've been appointed in a business case, first thing I do is I go look at the cash registers to the extent that anything got left there and saves. And so sometimes I have cash. But I rarely take possession. If it's a piece of real estate, I engage a real estate broker. 
If it's uh, a car that I need to take possession of, I usually employ an auctioneer who's got a bond to cover that car right. because now I'm responsible for the, that personal property. So I limit what I take possession of. Sure. But, the, but the truth is for most people, their over-exempt status comes from their personal items they own. Their personal small items of jewelry, their furniture, their clothing, what's in their house. So it's good that Jackie, from my perspective, won't take possession because what I tell, tell my clients is, look, if you're $5,000 over on exemptions, Jackie's going to call me and say, to have them pay me $5,000. And so I'll say to Jackie, come take the stuff. If you want the old couch and you want the old clothes and whatever, come right. take it. And then what happens is we have some leverage for a negotiation. Yeah. Have you and ever tried to sell an old couch? Or the old dining room chairs. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not very you, easy, my friend. I'm trying to sell some right now. I've had no luck. <laughs> None. I will tell you, though. Um, it's impossible. <laughs> as much uh, of, um, you know, as much deference as I give to, to debtors and a, as much of the benefit of the doubt that I give them, if I have a debtor who's playing games, I am not above scheduling an auction at the debtor's home. So I guess you hold that sway over them. I have had I have had instances where I have, on behalf of a trustee, sent out uh, an auctioneer type or, a, or yeah. an examiner to examine the contents of their home, inventory it, and give me a valuation. Because it's you know it's a matter of sort of logic. If someone's living in a half a million dollar house or right. a million dollar house, it's not logical that they have you know fifty dollars worth of personal property. Right. And so any kind of declaration under penalty of perjury like that. Uh, yields some suspect, um, sub sub suspicion at minimum that you know they're not telling the the truth. And By the way, yeah, one yeah, of the things yeah. that one of the things that I've uh, employed over the years, I pr I primarily represent debtors. I've had a number of high end Chapter Seven debtors where when I say high end, they have assets. They simply had a large judgment or something, and there's a reason for them to file. And so if they live at a particular address, like Lays is talking about, mm -hmm. I have them hire an appraiser before we file the case, and I attach the appraisal of all of their personal property to their bankruptcy filing, and the trustee knows if it's an appraiser they trust that we're not playing games. We're showing this is exactly what we have. And if you want to come take it and sell it, I'll, you'll do that, or we'll make an offer to buy some of it back. And a, that's how that works. A good debtor's lawyer will anticipate what I might do if I'm representing someone like Jackie as trustee or Jackie as trustee herself, we, we all know who the folks who work, who, who provide ancillary services to, to folks like us, and they will actually go to them first and, and precipitate oh, yeah? the surprise. Yes, because they, they, if they're logical and, they're, and their clients have told them the whole truth, with, which sometimes doesn't happen, but in, the, in most cases I believe they do, that they'll, they'll precipitate the... Uh, the look-see into their personality and get those inventories and valuations in advance. And, and what's yeah. important to remember is that the forgiveness of debt is for the honest debtor. Right. I mean, because, you know, when you say, and I, I want to get to some of these juicy stories, but I just want to put this out there real quick. You know, one of the big problems in this country is this whole, uh, our medical system, and that it can cause people to have to file bankruptcy. You know, the fact because we don't choose to get sick. Nobody chooses to get sick. And, yeah, it, some of these fees can be astronomical. And I can see how it could bankrupt somebody. Um, do you do you and or the courts approach that debtor differently than somebody who maybe just made some bad business decisions? As a trustee, I when I sit for a calendar, it keeps me very real. I remember how lucky I am to have a good job, to have a good career, to have my health. 
because there are a lot of sad stories. Yeah. So for me, when I see, uh, you know, I've seen it before, a single mother who comes with a head wrap and no eyebrows, yeah. you know, that pulls at my heartstring. For that sure. person can't work. That person has medical bills, is in chemotherapy. I, I don't even think twice about that. Right. I also, but I, I don't treat them any different than somebody who's just made bad business decisions. And Lord knows that between 2009 and 2013, there were a lot of honest business people oh, yeah. who got caught in a really bad market yeah. and needed relief. I, I don't treat them any different. I, I do treat very different the ones who live in a million dollar home and disclose $1,000 of personal property. That's a red flag. Do a lot of people do that? Um, a lot of people do. Now, if it's Those but, with crappy lawyers. Lays is shaking her head like, uh-huh, that's right. I was about to say that. If it's Paul's client, I'd suspect that everything is going to be on the up and up. Sure. But there are certain practices who are very careful and ask the right questions and over-disclose, which is always the best thing to do. And then there are some practitioners who may be a little more sloppy. So yeah. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, and this is many years ago, I was working as counsel for a trustee in a case that appeared to have some 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 questionable declarations. And the house at that time, many years ago, was worth you know over half a million dollars. I think it was in the 700s. And the, the declaration provided that their personal property was worth, I don't know, $500 in, in total. And of course, that raised my my concern, and I went and and got the appropriate permissions to go send someone out. I actually, sent someone out before going into court because I wanted to understand exactly what the parameters would be for um, for an inspection. And when the trustee's assistant went out there, um, it was a, a a pretty nice home, and through the windows, just just looking in, there was a grand piano. <laughs> and 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 fancy art and it turned out you know you couldn't tell from the outside but in the minute I ran to court and said I need an emergency order um, to go there and inspect an inventory because I didn't want any of those things disappearing um, there the 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 declaration was nowhere near the value the debtor had been the um, owner of an antique shop and there were very very valuable items of personality there and Similarly, you, you, you get declarations where you go send out someone to do the inspection and they're looking through the, through the different rooms in a house and they'll see the mark of a missing frame. And there's the dust mark or the paint mark and you know Incredible. something's been there and it's right. not, not there anymore. Um, and so I'm with, with Paul in that, you know, even if it's an expensive painting, if it's worth, I mean, barring something really unique like a Picasso or a sure. Monet or something like that, um, in a just a, a a person's home, it's not worth particularly um, the 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 penalty of a bankruptcy fraud, which is a felony, um, and the potential ramifications uh, of the repayment or or losing the rest of the items or your discharge because that's really we haven't talked about that when you fail to disclose assets and you fail to make declarations that are honest and truthful, you you could have filed bankruptcy, not get the benefit of the filing, meaning you don't get a discharge of any of your debt and also lose all of your non-exempt assets. So that's like the worst of all worlds, right? Because you you, you entered into this process right. to get to with an objective to get your discharge, right? Get 
free of all of this debt. Your debt doesn't go away, and on top of it, you lose your assets. And so that is, from the civil side, the greatest penalty for not being truthful. And then there is the criminal component, which is a whole other um, discussion. Sure, sure. All right, juicy story time. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I'm also curious, not only the juicy ones, but some of the most like ridiculous, like the stupid you know. Well, bef- before we get juicy stories, I think it's important to know that there's a room where we conduct these meetings. Jackie was talking about her calendar. It's called a Section 341 meeting because Section 341 of the Bankruptcy Code says that when you file bankruptcy, you've got to come down and in person meet your trustee. You have to show your driver's license and your Social Security card, and your trustee questions you for five or ten minutes about your case. On the wall behind the trustee, it says perjury is a federal crime. And you are implored to understand that lying in a bankruptcy case, whether it's oral testimony or what you sign on your, because you sign your petition on your papers, is a federal crime. And so you can have um, uh, terrible criminal issues on top of losing your discharge and sort of like the double whammy if you end up engaging in that behavior. And I mean, this obviously happens to people. It, it, it does. I mean, look, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every single person who uh, lies in a bankruptcy case gets prosecuted. The way I've sort of, in a joking way, looked at it is um, if there is someone who has engaged in criminal activity, such as perjury or lying on their schedules, in many cases, either the trustee or one of the U.S. trustees will make what's called a referral to the U.S. Attorney's Office to determine whether or not there's a basis to prosecute. And it seems that in the 30 years I've been doing this, about every six years or seven years, the U.S. attorney arrests five or six or seven people. It's in the paper. And so people in the community see, oh, my God, you can get in trouble for uh, doing this in bankruptcy. Yeah. And so it, d- it doesn't happen all the time. Oftentimes it's notable folks like lawyers. Exactly. And right. And exactly. They want to make it. Yeah. They there was a recent a wave. Last year, there were about eight people who were arrested. Right. Um, and some of these weren't that they didn't disclose like millions of dollars. They didn't disclose what small I would things. small things. Right. But deliberately didn't disclose them. Right. Grandma's ring. Listen, the truth is you can lose your discharge for not disclosing not only what you own, but who you owe money to. I mean, you're supposed to disclose all your assets and liabilities. So people will say to me when we're in a consultation, well, do I have to disclose that I owe money to my family members? I said, absolutely. You know, if you make a decision down the road, you want to pay them back for moral reasons, that's between you and them. You're not required to. And you can tell them I said that you legally don't have to pay them back, but you need to disclose that you owe them money. Right. It's required. Yeah, and you would think people would want to load that up. The right. disclosures are on both sides, right? They're sure. disclosures of assets and liabilities, and they all have the penalty of perjury if they're not truthful. So you have to do both. You have to disclose on both sides. And again, bankruptcy is a federal uh, process, right? Correct. Correct. So when you lie, it becomes a federal crime. Press, it's a federal crime. That's it. Crazy. Okay, juicy story time. Well, we were talking about the homestead. Yes. So I I was a trustee in this case where this young man uh, filed for bankruptcy. And he had two pieces of property titled to his name. One of of the, the homes was where his mother lived. And the other home was where his alleged estranged wife lived. So he claimed that the home where he lived with, where the, where the wife was living, was protected as tenancy by the entireties. Under Florida law, when a husband and wife own property together, it's exempt from garnishment by creditors unless there's a joint creditor. 
So he he exempted it, not as homestead. But then he said, because they were going to be getting a divorce, he's been living in in the house where his mother is, and he claimed that as homestead. And he said he'd been living there for a year or something like that. So social media is great. We find his Facebook page. And lo and behold, all over his Facebook pages are pictures of he and his alleged estranged wife kissing and at parties and at holidays. And she's wearing a ring and he has his arm around her. So we objected to Homestead there. Wow. Um, and then we made a referral on that case. A referral as to the in, U.S. attorneys to say, hey, to the to the U.S. trustee to say, you know, this is a potential criminal referral. Okay. Uh, so we sold the house. I, I objected to exemptions. I actually you sold tried, the mother's house or the, the estranged alleged wife's house. The mother's house because oh, that was damn. not his homestead. <laughs> it was not his homestead. The other one was protected as tenancy by the entireties. Right. There was no joint debt. I didn't have an issue with that. Okay. Um, but the other home was a property that was owned. And I tried to work with a creditor, with a debtor. I tried to help them get financing, but wasn't able to. Even after he lied to you? Well, remember, my goal is to get money into the the estate. Because when I get money into the estate, I get to pay, I have to pay creditors. So one of the, one of the elements that I look at is how much are creditors owed? If a creditor, if the creditor body is 30,000 and I have you know, $25,000 of assets, but I have a potential pool of 100000 I may make the business judgment decision that it's not worth it to get to go after that pool of assets. So in this case, there was more value in the home. There, there were creditors to pay. So the debtor was, or the mother was going to get money back anyway. Okay. Because whatever surplus is goes back to the, to the debtor or to the party from where I, you know, I, I took the, the home. Uh, but I've objected to a number of homesteads like that uh, based on sleuthing and going on social media. Yeah, checking it out. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many Rolexes, Rolex watches are in the Atlantic Ocean and Biscayne Bay. So one of the red flags is you're looking through Oh, the, like I lost it in the bay? Oh, it fell off on the... <laughs> it's... It, I mean, you should, we could get a job uh, doing a rescue or... Scavenger. That's Rolex, Rolex Recon. So we see Mayors as a creditor. Mayors is owed $8,000. So that's a red flag. There's no jewelry listed on their schedules. So I ask, okay, what did you buy at Mayors? I bought a Rolex watch. Where is that Rolex watch? I lost it at the beach. When was the last time a watch fell off your wrist on the beach? But that's really, it's very difficult to prove that intent. But, so I typically just have to let those go. You do. But, but social yes. media has made a big change in the bankruptcy practice because trustees can look at social media. I've had a couple of interesting things happen where I had one time a trustee uh, actually in a deposition of my client presents a, a series of pictures with my client wearing jewelry at social events. And her explanation, she owned a shop in the key in Key West and she kept jewelry in the safe there. What she would do is she would take a piece of jewelry out of the safe that was owned by her shop, wear it socially to try to get people to buy it and then put it back. So she goes, oh yeah, that was stuff that was owned by the shop, it wasn't mine. So she went like kind of ha-ha to the trustee. But social media has changed things because the trustee can look at your Instagram page and look at your Facebook page and figure things out that you maybe forgot about. It definitely happens. I, I had a debtor um, in, the, in the music business um, tell me that 
his declarations were truthful, despite the fact that he was on the front cover of a magazine with wearing very large, very uh, significantly valued gold jewelry. And uh, his explanation during deposition was that that was not his jewelry, that that was his grandmother's. And his grandmother had, had, had passed. So um, I seriously looked to file a motion to, um, to exhume the body of the grandmother because he testified that, he, that the jewelry had been buried with his grandmother. And oh, so, wow. That's a good one. Oh, man. So you want it juicy. <laughs> yeah. That's juicy. What happened? You didn't actually exhume the grandmother's body. No, he... He, he, he um, came clean? He settled. He settled uh, the claim of the creditor. Yeah. My, my client was a music producer at, at the time, and um, we settled. That means he paid up. Claim. A couple of years ago, I was wow. representing a Chapter 11 debtor, and I got fired as the lawyer. And, you know, you're never happy to be uh, get out of a case, and apparently the debtor, the company uh, that owned uh, like a, I forget, like a couple of uh, properties up in the middle of the state, but their office was down here. And um, the what happens in a Chapter 11 case is a Chapter 11 debtor needs to hold money that it's earning in what's called a debtor in possession account. We call it DIP, a DIP account. And so that money's there, and they have to report on all of their sales and what's going on and what happens during the Chapter 11. Well, I was in court about a month later after I had been uh, terminated from the case, and I hear that in that same case that the debtor, the individual principal, the company, has now been accused of taking all the money out of the DIP account and using it individually. And I went, I'm glad I'm out of this one. Um, (laughs) What would have happened to you if that... Oh, nothing necessarily would have happened to me unless I knew something about it, but um, certainly a debtor's not allowed to do that, and a principal of a debtor, and that guy ended up getting in a lot of trouble, and both he and his wife happened to know because uh, someone I rented space from became the trustee, was the trustee in both of their individual bankruptcy cases down the road road and he I think because of what he did ended up not getting discharged from any of his debt so well we've actually had had have asked the court to issue writs of uh, of bodily attachment to uh, debtors who um, are either not uh, there's usually an order that the judge issues and the debtors don't obey it and then we ask the court to for an order to show cause why they should not be held in contempt and then the court will sometimes issue a writ of bodily attachment. What does that mean, a writ of bodily attachment? So, a story that just jogged my memory, we represented we represented the debtor in possession, a company. And that company had a principal. Uh, so in, in Chapter 11, the company stays in possession. There's no trustee appointed. Okay. Um, so that means the company just continues to operate. But the principal of the debtor... Um, we entered into a 14-hour mediation with a secured creditor uh, who really had a lot of leverage in the case. And at the end of the mediation, the principal of the debtor was going to walk away with over half a million dollars as long as he left the, the company. Um, it was a great deal for him. It was what we call cab fare. The next day, we get a call my office gets a call from the bank where the debtor in possession accounts are and says, there is some, somebody's putting in a request for a wire transfer of $75,000. So we said, because it was unusual. So we inquired where, and it was to the principal's personal account. So not only did the principal lose the half a million dollars that he negotiated, we now asked Judge Olson, one of our bankruptcy judges, to find him and to order him to appear. Well, the judge entered an order 
the debtor, the principal did not appear. So he asked the U.S. Marshals to go and apprehend him. Now, wow. when the U.S. Marshal processes uh, an arrest, I think they go through Kansas. It's not local, like like uh, you know, state court is. Right. So they took the principal of our company, they put him in a van in an orange suit, traveled for days in a van because they don't fly to Kansas, oh, wow. was processed there, and a week later showed up in front of Judge Olson in. Um, Shackles. Shackles and yeah. an orange suit. Wow. You get all kinds of things that happen. This this case is that I'm going to talk about is many years ago. This is before the internet because it was a company that provided um, 800 telephone sex services that filed for Chapter 11. And as the case was... That's a lot of sex services, 800. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I, I was representing the debtor um, many, many years ago. And I get a call from the principal of the company that the... Uh, the in-house um, accountant was had embezzled a million dollars from the business. That's really not very good news. Then I get a call from the in-house accountant who says that the principal of the company is at the business at that moment with a gun and threatening her and her son and the in-house lawyer. So now I have two parties in my own case kind of at odds, and I wasn't sure exactly what to do. So what I did is I asked the bankruptcy judge for an in-camera hearing, meaning just before the judge nobody else could attend. And I told the judge what was going on, and I said, Judge, I've never done this, and I doubt I will ever do it again, but I need to ask for a trustee in my own case. I need to have someone come in and take over and figure out what's going on here. A um, couple of qu- interesting things that happened way down the road after that. Um, one of the, the lender ended up um, arguing that my firm's fees should all be disgorged because they said somehow we knew about it. And uh, it turns out there's a great opinion by one of our federal judges when this went up on appeal. And what he said, which made me feel good, was he said, Mr. Orshan did what we would expect an officer of the court to do. And we cannot penalize him for doing the right thing. That's number one. Number two, during the Elliot Spitzer uh, scandal, when he got in trouble for dealing with prostitutes, I turn on CNN one night and uh, CNN is talking to an expert on prostitution, and there is the principal of my debtor <laughs> 20 years later, and this is what he's talking about. So you never know. You never know what kind of people you end up dealing with. He was an expert on prostitution? Yes, apparently. He had some expertise from the business side. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> and he went around to every lawyer in town in Miami trying to get them to sue me for what I had done, and nobody would take the case. Did he have a good phone voice? He, he, he wasn't on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we're seeing a lot, and particularly in Miami with uh, so much migration from other countries, is folks, folks are coming in from Venezuela and other countries. They uh, start to make a living here, but they maintain homes and a living in, in those home countries. Uh-huh. And when they have, or they come across circumstances where they have a need to file bankruptcy, they don't disclose the assets that they own in some of these other countries. And uh, the important part um, in that regard is that our our bankruptcy process isn't limited to the jurisdictional geographic area of the United States. Oh, really? So when you declare your assets, you must include assets located all over the world. Similarly, if you file a bankruptcy in the United States, um, 
it's extrajudicial the relief you get, right? So you you are free to not pay any debt no matter where located. Question whether another country will um, will give credence to that ruling, but the same applies. So your benefits right. and your burdens both uh, sure. are. But nobody here nobody here is going to try to follow up on that. Well, nobody here because you'll have a discharge, a protection from the courts. Right. But from the asset standpoint, what you what you find is, you know, people who are coming in to file, they file here and then they don't disclose the assets elsewhere. That's and crazy. they could be very valuable. Sure. So they're expecting that a trustee might not locate an asset that's somewhere else. And and Jackie may, may have examples Nowadays, we're very savvy, you know, particularly I, I try, I practice in the cross-border, um, in the cross-border practice area, and I am not at all afraid of going to other countries to seek um, assets and find assets there. Yeah, how, how do you do that? Do you go to the those respective countries' uh, departments of, I guess, what, that whatever the counterpart would be to what we have so there's a there's a that's a good question we have also a chapter 15 which we didn't talk about it it's a very limited limited use but it's multinational companies use it to come to the u.s to have recognized their proceedings elsewhere but you can also if you need cooperation from another country and they've signed on to a model law that's prescribed by the united nations you can go to a different country and say i am the trustee in a bankruptcy in america i need your cooperation, uh, whatever country, Colombia, for example, mm-hmm. um, who just recently enacted the model law, and they will cooperate with the U.S. courts. And what's that credence. law called? It's well, it's called the model law on Chapter 15. In is our, that a, is that an acronym for something? Because you know we're famous for acronyms in this country. It, it it's is like it one is, of our things. It's a, it's it's a model law on on insolvency uh-huh. prescribed by the United Nations, and there are signatory countries to it. So you have the typical European countries, many of which are signatories. And you have some South American countries. So the U.S. is also a part of it. And with that cooperation, if you have a foreign proceeding and they need help from the U.S. bankruptcy courts to protect assets located here in the United States, they can come in and ask for relief. It's very similar to the relief you get from a American bankruptcy. Right. And there's a protection and a stay. And similarly, when you go from a bankruptcy proceeding filed here in the U.S. to another jurisdiction where they're a signator, you can get the protection and the help from those courts. I mean, it, it may be that the trustee will not determine that it's economically feasible to go after an asset in another country. Sure. But again, it's about the disclosure. It's right. the it's the not and so most of the trustees these days ask, do you own any real property in another country? It's one of the questions that gets asked at your creditors meeting sure. because it's something that people may not put down. Right, and if it's a country like Costa Rica, well, it's very easy to get a broker there and sell a property for you. But if it's a country oh, like Venezuela, that's good to know. I'll be but, down there in about eighteen months. You can, I'll help you out any way I can. I'll carry your surfboard. <laughs> but if it's a country like Venezuela, it may not be that easy to recover. So it's really yeah. you do a cost-benefit analysis. But right. I say Costa Rica because I did have a debtor, uh, a, a case where the debtor had property in Costa Rica, and uh, they had uh, a fractional interest, like maybe a, a fourth. And I was able to get a valuation from a broker there and sell it to her siblings who also had an yeah, interest. Right. But I could have sought to partition the property and go through either the mod, I, I'm not sure if they're signatories to the model law, or sue them through another convention mm-hmm. and serve them depending on whether they're signatories to some convention. There's another side of issues with country, foreign countries is that I had this happen with a client of mine where 
a client has foreign debt where they owe a bank in Venezuela money. This happened to a client of mine, and they file bankruptcy here, and they're discharged from the debt. The Venezuelan bank didn't care. Right. They they would not honor the fact that he'd been discharged, and even after he got discharged from the debt, and there's nothing he can do about it. You can't petition the court and say, hey, this bank in Venezuela is not honoring the discharge, because there are, there are circumstances where you can bring in um, a party for violating the discharge injunction, which goes into effect upon receiving the discharge, but you can't bring in a foreign bank to do that. Right, because... And, and just let me just throw this out there, because one of the things that I understand this whole protection to be is that in this country, if you have a debt and um, you either ignore it or you go to court, the, the, the creditor takes you to court and you lose and they get a judgment, they can actually like get some sort of an instrument where they're allowed to go with the police the sheriff, and usually. a moving company and come into your house and take all your stuff. That's called executing on the judgment. Executing on the judgment. And they get a of execution permits. Right, right. The so they can come in and they can empty your joint out. And they can garnish your bank accounts and empty those. I tell clients all the time, the, re- the ma- basic reason That's what this protection file- is for, yes, though, the, mainly, right? The basic right. reason that people file individual bankruptcy in many cases where they have suffered a judgment is they don't want the sheriff coming in and going through their underwear drawer. Because what happens is the sheriff can come and take everything in your house and then hold it and then sell it to pay off your debt. And so what people end up doing is, well, we don't want to have that happen. That's why we're going to file. So, But that does happen. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be... Um that, that, that's got to be very traumatic, I would think. It, it can be. This country doesn't have debtor's prison. So in that sense, you can't be jailed for owing money. Right. And the bankruptcy process exists to provide folks with a fresh start who have legitimate debt right. and have had legitimate circumstances that created the debt. But debtor's prison did exist. I don't know if this country ever had it, but I know England used to definitely have debtor's prison. Down in Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they locked the people debtors. up that owed money, <laughs> which, of course, I always say is like it's, it makes no sense because if you lock, it's like this, there's actually laws in this country where they lock up fathers for not paying child support and they put them in jail where they're definitely not going to be able to pay child support. So that's a whole other show. But you know what ends up happening? I honestly, in those cases, they seem to find the money. A lot of them. Go figure. Sometimes. Many times. Not always. That's true. Sometimes they've gotten sick and or whatever, made bad business decisions, and not everybody knows. Yeah, but at that, not get off topic. But if that's the case, they have opportunities to go into court to get a modification of what they owe to pay exactly. what they owe. So exactly. In many, it's just typically a lot of times just deadbeat dads or uh, who are just not paying, and it's their kids, and they should be they should pay, and if they don't, they should have dire consequences. Or conversely, this system can be of uh, our system. These halls of justice and these instruments that are used can be very overwhelming and complicated. And if you don't have the resources to hire a lawyer, an expert that knows how to navigate these areas, um, it can be daunting and it can be scary and it can be something that you may turn around and go, I just don't want to deal with it. And, and then that's what happens. Because it seems that you, you all get to deal with people that are taking some sort of responsible action. Or they're taking action out of fear or... Right, or both. You know, and there are cases where um, it actually makes sense for those fathers, the, the, the deadbeat fathers, to file because alimony and child support payments are not dischargeable. Right. So you can have uh, 
And there's a case that I have now that Lays is familiar with where the debtor is a professional, but the debtor has a lot of business debt um, that if those creditors were to garnish his accounts and take his personal assets, he would not be able to pay for the child support alimony if somebody garnished his bank accounts. So by wiping out that unsecured debt, that frees up more cash for him to make his alimony and child support now you, payments. Now, you just made a, uh, this comment, unsecured debt, and I heard you saying secured creditors and unsecured debt. C- can you just break that down for me real quick, what that means? Yeah, Lazer's a creditor's lawyer, right. so why don't we? <laughs> so the difference... She's on the secured side. <laughs> ah, okay. So there is a waterfall, that's what we call it, our priority of payment provided under the bankruptcy code. And it essentially provides that first, when you... Um, when you liquidate or monetize assets, you have to first pay creditors who are voluntarily given a charge or a lien on assets. Typically, the the best example is a mortgage. You okay. voluntarily give a bank a mortgage on your house. That is a secure debt because okay. it has collateral that backs the payment of the debt. And so when you are looking at a bankruptcy, in a, say in a Chapter 7 example, when a trustee monetizes an asset, if it has uh, a lien on it, it could be real estate, it could be personality, they could all be liened, um, you have to pay the, the lien or, or the secured party first. Okay. They, they take first because they bargained for that collateral. Okay, now that, after that, then you have to pay unsecured debts. Okay. And the, and the priority of the payment for unsecured debts is also outlined in the code. You have um, creditors who are priority creditors. Um, Jackie was speaking of the alimony and child support. Those are called domestic support obligations, and those are paid as unsecured because there's no collateral for those, right? So those get paid first in the priority of payment. Uh, taxes. IRS, that sort of thing, they also have a priority of payment. Wages, if people are owed wages, when when you look at a bankruptcy filing by a company that hasn't paid their employees, wages up to a capped amount are priority claims. Uh, Deposits, you put a deposit on tile for your house and the company goes belly up, you have protection as a priority unsecured creditor up to a capped amount. Then after that, after the priority creditors are paid, then you pay unsecured creditors. Typically, unsecured debt is like a consumer credit card. Although some of them have wisely added some language and receipts and things that you can sign that grants them a lien on what you buy. Typically, um, like a mayor's, Jackie mentioned, sometimes has a lien on what you buy. Rooms to go. Rooms Sears, to go. Yeah, those kinds Sears, of places. Certain ones. But right. typically a MasterCard, um, a Visa, uh, generally that the debt that results from the use of those cards are usually unsecured debt. Okay. And we see in that... In, in that vein, uh, some abuse uh, from debtors. So they'll go to a place like Rooms to Go, a few months, you know, within a year of filing for bankruptcy. They'll buy new furniture for their home. They'll go to Brandsmart. They'll go to Best Buy. And then they'll put in their schedules that the debt is, that the assets are encumbered by secure debt. So in other words, if they have, let's say, $20,000 of personal property because they've bought all this stuff, they're saying that the value to the estate is not $20,000 because if you sell the sofa or the washing machine, Brandsmart or Rooms to Go is going to get paid first. But these debtors are not reaffirming their debt, and most of the time these, um, these the companies like Rooms to Go or Brandsmart don't want their collateral 
uh, they don't even file a secured proof of claim. Right. They don't so, want it back. Right. But, it, but yeah. it's kind of like a trick. And we've, you know, the trustees have seen around that and we don't buy it anymore. I guess that must have worked for a while. I, I think it worked for a while. Uh, but, uh, you know, if they don't reaffirm the debt, um, that means that, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to, they don't intend to keep the piece of furniture which, or to pay Which for means, it. Joe, right. that you sign a document that gets filed with the court that you agree to pay that obligation back. Um, most typically it happens with your home mortgage. They Some of the mortgage holders require a reaffirmation of the debt. And uh, on a leased car or a car loan, they ask you to reaffirm the debt. Because what happens is, even though, let's say on a home mortgage, if you file for bankruptcy, um, you are resolving your personal liability on the mortgage. They still have the collateral of the house. So if you don't reaffirm the debt, then you have no personal liability to the but lender. But would they want you as a customer still? Well, they would because they want to be able to then, if for any reason there's a deficiency when they end up getting the house back, they want to come after you. I mean, for the most part, creditors want the benefit of their bargain. They don't really want their house back or they don't really want their couch back. Yeah. They want to be paid. So when you reaffirm that debt, you promise to pay them going forward. If you fail to, they still have their rights to the collateral. But in reality, I mean, I'm, I've yet to represent any kind of secured creditor who tells me that they prefer to get whatever it is back. They usually want right. to be paid. Unless it's a house. Not even, even then. Really? Even then. Not even. Banks are in the business of dealing with money and making money, not in the business of owning not homes. Not managing property. Despite what you know, people might say because sure. there was well, obviously in, in, a huge in, in problem. The, in the aught sixes and aught eights, they certainly were in the business of owning homes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thousands That's right. Of them. But they didn't like it. And they, didn't, they no. preferred sure. to be paid rather than to get uh, property that's been owned by someone else and have it sit in REO, which is real estate owned by the bank, right. uh, for a period of time while someone buys it up. Exactly. Did did the banks manage to get rid of uh, a lot of those homes that were foreclosed on during the 2008? I think I think now I think you 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 see many banks are not holding too much REO. I mean I think over the years I think they've sort of taken that inventory and put it mm-hmm. out on the market and and sold it. What ended up happening is they ended up. Uh, it's a little bit off topic. They ended up packaging these loans and selling these packages of loans that other parties bought, and then they managed the foreclosure, and they got the properties back. They were not the banks, but sometimes companies owned by the banks or uh, other people, and they ended up foreclosing, finishing it off, and then reselling the properties. Interesting. Okay, any last juicy stories you want to get out before we wrap this show up? Or any particular advice you would give to people who have the idea to, to declare bankruptcy and they're thinking about pulling a maneuver that you've seen a thousand times? I'll give you three ideas. One, hire a good lawyer, most important. Number two- Or Shanlaw. Be honest. <laughs> and number three, disclose. Those right. are the three. If you do those three things, you really will end up getting through bankruptcy pretty pretty well. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have issues, and it doesn't mean you may not have to pay back some money to the trustee, and, and it doesn't mean that you're going to get away get get out with all of your property because you may have to turn some back. But at the end of the day, if you have a legitimate reason why you need to seek bankruptcy protection and you need to get out of this debt to get a fresh start and move on with your life, do it the right way. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a great uh, mechanism that seems to be abused sometimes, but. That's why we have trustees to look to look out for the abuses and creditors' lawyers and creditors' lawyers <laughs> and, and good debtors' lawyers who yeah. make sure that their clients are telling the truth. 
And particularly, honestly, in our district, we happen to have a very aggressive group of trustees. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, they are very aggressive and they will uh, go after whatever they need to go after. You know, one of the things I talk about is that a client will come to see me with a failing business and they talk about liquidating the business. And my typical response is I would never put a business into Chapter 7. And the reason I won't do that is because all you're doing is giving a trustee a license. Again, remember I talked about backward-looking preferences mm-hmm. and fraudulent transfers to look at every penny that came out of that business for the last four years. And so the trustee, where's the trustee going to look first? The principal's wife, the children, the grandmother, whatever, where the money went. The mortgage right. company on their home. So, look, I have filed um, Chapter 7 yeah. for companies, but very rarely. I think there's a state court process that's much easier to liquidate a business that's called an assignment for the benefit of creditors. That's just my personal Same preference. Here as far as liquidating a business. Um, and I actually almost think it's it's close to malpractice for a debtor's lawyer to put a company into Chapter 7. I agree with that. Wow. that's. I would never put a closely held business in a Chapter 7. No. no. When you, you say closely held business, you mean a privately a owned? Business. Family owned right. business. Fam- oh, yeah, because there's you know, too much maneuvering. Right, and, and yeah. they don't typically follow the formalities. So, you know, the debtor's principal, the owner might say, oh, this month, instead of getting a paycheck, I'm just going to go pay my mortgage company. Right. Well, the company didn't receive anything. Yeah, if it, it may be, or maybe you should have paid taxes on the money that you were supposed to get, but you, instead you paid your mortgage company. It just... You know, it opens up a can of worms. Look, there are, there are circumstances sure. where you have to. I recently filed one for two reasons. Number one, the company was having just so much litigation going on that it had to be stopped. I mean, it was just it needed to be stopped. And it was also against the company and the principals. But the principals were filing also. So if the principals are also filing, you're not as worried about right. it because the people that the trustee is going after are normally principals. Secondly, I have filed companies that have been out of business for a period of years, and they need to file for a reason like for taxes or some purpose like that, where there's really nothing for the trustee to look at, so it's not an issue. But can you get – aren't taxes ex- exempt from that, that whole – bankruptcy thing? The, the taxes can be written well, off, discharged? No, no taxes... Well, t- in an individual bankruptcy, it's pretty rare that taxes can be discharged. Uh, uh, generally, in order for taxes, individual income taxes to be discharged in a bankruptcy, they have to be um, uh, more than three years old and have to have been assessed more than 180 days before the bankruptcy. But there's an interesting new law, a new case that came out that one of our judges in Palm Beach has followed, which says that and I'm dealing with this issue right now with a potential client, is if you filed your return late, the late filed return, you can never discharge your taxes. Were you aware of that? The so, case in Mississippi, and so I, you can you cannot discharge those taxes. And you, so, you can also not discharge your taxes if you fail to file the returns or correct. if you filed them fraudulently or right. in, in error. So you have to make sure that if you're looking for that kind of relief, I mean, it's very technical because there's so many loopholes that you have to follow. So you have to have filed your taxes timely and and correctly. I'll let you know because I'm filing a case pretty soon with a hu- with huge tax liabilities. We'll see what happens. The other thing that you have to be careful about when there's a tax liability is, you know how Paul was talking about there's a four-year look-back period yeah. for recovering assets that have been tra- fraudulently transferred? Well, for the IRS, that look-back period is 10 years. Oh, wow. So remember, the trustee stands in the shoes of the creditors. So if there is an obligation to the IRS, you really want to make sure that your client who, or your, who's potentially going to file Chapter 7 hasn't transferred assets in the last 10 years to a family member, uh, you know, your sister's son, 
something like that, because the trustee can now go back 10 years. Because one of our judges ruled that the trustee could step into the shoes of the IRS and have that same 10-year look back. I'm not saying I agree with that ruling, but that's the way the judge looked at it. And so now if you have IRS debt, the trustee can look back 10 years. Wow. Besides, you know, typically in taxes and looking at tax debt, the IRS has lien rights, which arise under operation of law. So typically, it's very difficult to escape a tax lien. Once a lien is a lien, it doesn't change its character when you file a bankruptcy. So you would have to have a situation where someone filed their taxes timely and truthfully, and the, the IRS missed leaning up all of their assets because by operation of law, once the lien becomes um, comes to be, it leans up every asset you own, and it becomes a secure Including debt. homestead. Oh, really? Yes. Not in Florida, though, right? Absolutely. Or, oh, man. or, or if the IRS leaned and the person fell on hard times and has no assets anymore, then, then that would maybe be my situation. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay, so I have two final questions, and, and, and one of them is, um, I've declared bankruptcy, I've gone through, I've gotten discharged. Um, how long before I get, can uh, start getting credit again, and or how long before I can declare bankruptcy again? <laughs> well, you... Um, couple things. Um, it, it takes probably about a four to six year period to repair your credit after you file for bankruptcy. Um, and you can actually get credit pretty much right away. What happens is a lot of the banks will give you a secured credit card for a short period of time and then work that into an unsecured card. Because from the, from the, the lender's perspective now, you, you don't owe anyone else money. You've discharged all of your debt. So you're probably a better credit risk for them because they know that you might have an opportunity and they know that you're, you're, you can't run back into bankruptcy. It's typically said you can't file, but every six years, I think, is what it is. But really, when uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, six or seven years, seven years. That the, I know it was one from, or the from other. From the discharge. From the date of the discharge. Well, you could file, but you can't get another discharge. Right. That's the law. Right. Ah. So, you could get a, so the limitation is the, is the discharge part. Right. right. You could file a Chapter 13. Stay in the chapter 13 for five years and then at that point get a discharge. Ah, okay. Um, we call that a chapter 20. But <laughs> right. 13, seven is 13. I got you. But you know, <laughs> further to what Paul said, um, I've seen debtors go through the chapter 7 process, get a discharge, really clean up their balance sheet, and start paying on time and they can qualify for home mortgages and cars so they can really rehabilitate their credit. That's good to know. It is It yeah. is good to know because if they hadn't gone through the process and they had judgments on their credit report, judgments are good for seven years and creditors can renew them right. for, you know, three times. So you can have Are there certain judgments that you can't get rid of? Um, well, only, you mean, from after filing bankruptcy? Yeah. Well, the only if the, the, that creditor moved to have their debt determined, we didn't really talk about this, their particular debt determined non-dischargeable. Typically, that happens for a couple of reasons. If the, if the, le the, the party who's owed money can allege and prove that you either committed fraud, used false, false pretenses, or used a false financial statement to get money from them, they can come into bankruptcy court and, and argue that even though you're getting discharged from all your other debts, you don't get discharged from them. But here's the truth of what happens. I've had clients who have agreed to non-dischargeable debts. And what happens is the creditor has a right to then sit you down for a deposition every six months or a year. And the first year, the creditor with this client years ago sat them down for a deposition twice, and he never heard from them again. So they do have a judgment, but he just has to be careful not to really own anything in his own name, and then he won't have to be worried about having that creditor pick that, you know, come after him for that. Interesting. Okay, so one of the things uh, that we do on this show before we end is uh, 
people that are, are the producers of the show were all involved in music. So I always like to ask my guests um, who they're listening to this week or this month, who's on their playlist, who, are they, who you got playing in the car or at home. Uh, Panic at the Disco right now. Panic at the Disco. I haven't heard that one in years. <laughs> nice. And I have right. tickets for Shakira this Friday, so I'll be listening to her. Amazing. I, I, my, my music tastes have not changed in many years, and I typically listen to 70s music, except Sunday mornings when I listen to classical. But I'll give you a little bankruptcy music uh, juicy story for one minute. Okay. Um, I was the person who filed an involuntary bankruptcy case against Luther Campbell back in the day mm-hmm. because I represented Peter Jones, who had sued him for royalties on a song that he wrote for Two Live Crew. So we were the ones who ended up starting that bankruptcy case, got to depose him. This is a long time ago. And it was actually a very interesting case because it had issues involving contracts. Um, he, at the time, had several women with whom he had children. So there were family law issues. There were uh, music contract issues. And it was a really interesting case to be involved in. But, yeah, me, it's 70s and classical for the most part. Miss <laughs> Jackie? Well, I, I'm a 90s girl. I love my grunge, and Pearl Jam is always the first station I go on Sirius XM. But my son has convinced me that Drake is a worthy listen. So I've come around on Drake, All right. and I also love Spanish ballads. Beautiful. I haven't seen you do that the Drake Louis video. Miguel. That little Louis Miguel. Nice. He's not my favorite. I'm more of a Ricardo Montaner okay. uh, fan or Alejandro Sanz. Nice. Beautiful. Well, for myself and the Felony Production team, I've been your host, Joe Stone. Don't forget to check us out online, uh, Apple, Spotify, your favorite RSS feeds. Give us a like, share about it with your friends, and we will see you next time. Well,